Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody this morning. Before we uh, continue in our time in the Word this morning, I want to let everyone know that uh, tonight at 5 o'clock at Mount Zion Church, there's going to be a special prayer service for Kyle Neff. Many of you, we sent out uh, this last week or so a prayer request for him, young man that was a part of our congregation not too many years ago that's... uh, they found a mass, a renal mass in his body, and uh, so they're going to be having a special prayer service for him tonight at Mount Zion at 5 o'clock. Uh, many of you know uh, Kelly and Carl Dell Williams and his folks, and so just want to encourage you in that. Even if you can't make it to the prayer service, uh, be mindful around 5 o'clock this evening to, to pause and pray for Kyle and, and uh, his healing, the Lord's uh, glory being displayed in, in his life through this time. As we get into the Word this morning in 1 Corinthians 12, we're uh, continuing a series that uh, we started back the 1st of February, and um, in January we uh, presented a, a new mission statement for our church, not a new mission, just a new statement to help describe what we're meant to be about, and, uh, and the statement says that we, we exist to glorify God in the making of disciples who gather together to worship Christ, grow together in the word of Christ, and go together as witnesses for Christ. And so uh, we did that in January. In February, we, we started into this series called Gather, where we're, we're simply talking about the things that we do in our worship gatherings. We're kind of, if you would, preaching through our worship order. Uh, we began this series with a message called We Gather to Sing, and we, we talked that, that week about why we sing in church. Why we sing so much in church? We sing, you know, usually upwards of a, a third of our service is, is devoted to singing praises to Christ. Why do we do that? And we talked about a biblical basis for that. We do it because the scriptures instruct us to primarily and because we love the Lord. We talked about the next week we gather to preach. Why and do you get to the great privilege of being able to sit here and endure my, my long sermons? Well, what's, what's that all about? I mean, what is it that we come together to sit and listen to somebody talk about God's Word uh, for a good half of our service each week. Why do we do that? And again, because the Word instructs us and because we love Christ. Last week we talked about our giving, why we pass the baskets. Is it just to keep the lights on and keep the staff paid? Or is there something greater happening when we give to the work of God in the midst of His church? And so uh, we're going to continue this week talking about the fact that we also gather to baptize. Now, there is a lot of confusion about baptism in our churches today. Even in our Baptist churches, we have the name, don't we? We're the ones that ought to understand baptism, and I would say there is as much or more confusion in the Baptist church today about what baptism means and, and what it's all about and then there is anywhere else. And so I'm going to try not to contribute to that confusion today. I'm hoping to bring some clarity to what the Bible teaches about baptism. Our key question for the day is this. What is the meaning and purpose of baptism? What does it mean that we dunk somebody under the water? It's Again, it's kind of a strange thing to do. A lot of stuff that we do in our worship services is kind of, kind of weird. Not many of us take public baths, right, for good measure. 
And yet, that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to immerse Molly, and she's going to be a picture for us of something far greater than this strange hillbilly tank and, and her going under the water. It's going, to be, it's going to be a great picture for us that we're going to, we'll talk about what it means here in just a few minutes. But why baptism? Before we answer that question, and again, so much confusion about baptism uh, in the churches today, and we find so many, my, my greatest concern about baptism is this. I find that so many people, when I ask about their relationship with Christ, and I'm not talking about people out in the community that, that are, aren't attached to the church. I'm talking about people that are in the church two or three times a month, or maybe it's every Sunday type folks. When I ask folks about, hey, tell me about your relationship with Jesus, I'm burdened by the fact that so many of those conversations begin with, well, I was baptized on such and such date. Now, I do not want to minimize this morning the importance of baptism. This is a biblical command and a beautiful picture that we are privileged to take part in because of the cross. But it burdens me that for so many folks, when I ask about their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, their relationship with Him, it begins and ends with a statement about their baptism. And so I want to say this this morning. We, have, we started, because of my burden about this, we started having a baptism class that we're, we're doing now as a means of helping us get beyond some of that. I want you to understand one thing about baptism this morning. And this may be the best takeaway uh, that I could give you from the very beginning this morning, and it's this. Baptism was never meant to be a finish line for your faith. Baptism was always, always intended to be a starting point for your walk with Jesus Christ. And we have churches that are filled with folks who are trusting in a baptism, not in the one who paved the way so that baptism would mean something. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you find yourself in a place where if you were asked, hey, tell me about your relationship with Jesus Christ, and all that you can point to is a baptism that happened many, many years ago, and there has not been a living transformation in your life because of the presence of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit filling you, I want to urge you this morning to pay close attention because trusting in a baptism will send you to hell forever. I need you to understand that this morning. Do not trust in a baptism. Do not trust in a prayer that was prayed with a preacher. Do not trust in some event that happened 30 years ago and when on a day when you, somebody may have even told you that now you're good to go, everything's good, you got your ticket to heaven punched, and now you're good. If there has not been a transformation in your life, if Jesus Christ hasn't radically wrecked your existence with His presence, and I'm not saying that you've become perfect but you know the one who is. And you walk with him, and you talk with him, and you know him, and you have grown to know him more over the years. And it's not a perfect thing, but it is a progressive thing. If there's been no progress in your faith walk with Jesus Christ since the day you got dumped, then listen closely this morning. Please, I would beg you, do not trust your eternity to a baptism. 
you will find yourself on that day standing before the Lord of the universe as he says, depart from me because I never knew you. Baptism is not enough to save, but Christ is more than enough. That's just the introduction this morning. Let me talk about a little controversy with baptism. I've already established, and I, I, I can show you chapter and verse throughout the New Testament. Baptism will not save you, but there's a lot of other controversies related to what was meant to be a very simple and beautiful picture of the gospel that we participate in. Next week, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper, which is another very simple and beautiful picture of the gospel that we participate in, and it also has a lot of confusion associated with it. But here's part of the confusion with baptism. As you read through the New Testament, and you find dozens and dozens of references to baptism, people being baptized, people doing baptisms, and a lot of talk about what baptism means and, and even what it doesn't mean. One of the controversies that emerges around a text like what we read this morning that mentions baptism right there in verse 13, one of the, the controversies that you find is, is this difference between those who would talk about spirit baptism and those who would talk about water baptism. Now, by spirit baptism, he references here baptism by the Spirit. And you'll remember in Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist is baptizing out there in the wilderness and people are coming out to him because this is, there's something weird happening. For 400 years, there hadn't been a prophet. There hadn't been somebody speaking for God in the way John the Baptist did. And, of course, he's just preparing the way for Jesus. But he's out there and he's baptizing, a baptism of repentance, the forgiveness of sins. He's baptizing out there in the wilderness. And, and, and people are coming out, man, something crazy he's happening with this dude who eats locusts and weird he's a weird John the Baptist is a weird dude by the way I can't wait to meet that guy man that's going to be a fun conversation but but so he's out there baptizing but he makes this statement he understood his role that's so important for us and to know your role in the kingdom he understood his role and he said hey listen I'm just preparing the way here guys one is coming after me I'm not even worthy to untie that dude's shoes. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. This is your pastor's non-inspired version of the Bible. So he, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, and yet he, I'm baptizing you with water. He's going to come, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, Whatever you think you may understand about that, I want you to understand, regardless of what you do or do not with Jesus Christ, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit or with fire. You will either trust Him by faith and be baptized by the Holy Spirit, as verse 13 indicates, or you will reject the free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. You will die in your sins, and you will be baptized in the fires of His judgment. And I know that that's an unpopular thing to say these days. We don't talk nearly as much as we ought to about hell and what awaits those who reject the free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. But I'm going to tell you this morning, you will be baptized by Christ, either by His Holy Spirit or you will be baptized by the fires of His judgment. But John said, he's coming, he's going to baptize by the Holy Spirit. And there's some who would take that and they would look at verses like what we read this morning over, or over in Ephesians 4 or over in Romans chapter 6 and they would say, that's what's being talked about in all those passages, baptism by the Spirit. 
It's what's being happen, happening in all of those passages. It's, it's spirit baptism that's being referenced. It has nothing to do with water baptism, the thing that we're going to practice this morning. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's a whole lot of guys smarter than me who would say, no, all those passages in Romans 6 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, and we could go on and on over into 1 Peter chapter 2, all of those passages are not talking about spirit baptism. They're talking about water baptism. What we're going to see, this this immersing in water, that's an outward symbol of an inward faith. What we're going to talk about in all these passages is water baptism. So you can see there's a lot of confusion here as to what we're even talking about when we're talking about baptism. Are we talking about a a spiritual reality where the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes and, and our lives are immersed in Him? So immersed in Him that we are radically transformed by Him? Or are we talking about water baptism that symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? and serves as one of the two ordinances, or if you like the word, sacraments of the church, a a picture, a worship picture that pictures the gospel. What are we talking about here when we use the word baptism? Now, again, a lot of theologians love to go either or on stuff, and you all have heard me do this before. You may think I'm just walking the fine line or playing both sides, but I think it's not either or. I really think it's both and. Because what we see pictured... When a brother or sister comes before the church, having professed faith in Jesus Christ, us being being able to see the evidence of a life that's beginning to be changed by the gospel of grace, that what we see when that person is immersed in water, when they are laid low in the water and then brought up in that picture of Christ's death and burial and resurrection, that that is a picture of that spirit baptism that took place on the day when Jesus Christ became the Lord and Savior of their life. Now, if you come here this morning and you, and you sit under teaching that says, no, the The baptism of the Spirit happens after salvation. It's some secondary gift that happens on down the road somewhere where you speak in tongues and and, and a lot of crazy, erratic things happen. I want to tell you, read the New Testament. I want you to understand that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, if you belong to Him today, on the day that you came to faith in Christ, all the resources of the Holy Spirit were put at your disposal on that day. He wasn't holding out on you. Now, you didn't know how to use those resources. You didn't know how to grow in Christ when you were a young believer. You needed other believers to come alongside you. You needed parents. You needed mentors. You needed other Christians to come alongside you and teach you how to pray and teach you how to study the Word of God and teach you how to witness and teach you how to serve others in Jesus' name. You needed someone to teach you how to use the resources, but don't miss it. All the resources were there. I see far too many believers today who it's like they're sitting back waiting for God to pour out this extra measure of the Spirit and then they'll start serving the Lord. And I want you to understand this morning, He gave you everything you need for life and godliness, for walking in the pathways of righteousness and making an indelible impact on this sin-soaked world the day that you came to faith in Him. He's not holding out on you. 
He does want to continue to fill you with His Spirit. He does want to continue to grow you in His Word. He does want to continue to see your life transformed from the inside out, but He is not holding out on you. So here in 1 Corinthians 12, are we talking about spirit baptism? Are we talking about water baptism? I'm going to tell you this morning, I think we're talking about everything all in the above. That the baptism in water pictures baptism in the spirit, a life that's been radically changed. And so let's talk about that life this morning. First of all, in verse 12, we see that baptism is about one body. Baptism is about the fact that we become one body as the church. Let's read it again together. For just as the body, he's talking about our physical bodies, just as the body is one, notice the word one and many being used here, just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one. So we've got one, many, many are one. And so it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. One body, many Members. The first thing I want you to understand is this, that there is tremendous unity in the body of Christ. There's no unity what you, like what you will find in His church. There's no unity like this. It's greater than any family unity. It's greater than any organizational unity. Now, I know for many of us, our experience of the church lived out in, in the present reality doesn't seem that way. It seems as though it's lacking in some way because we allow sin to get its foothold and to disrupt our unity. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, which, by the way, is a parallel passage to, to 1 Corinthians 12. You've got 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4 all teaching the same message to different churches. Ephesians 4, he says this, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's the call of the gospel there, by the way with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then notice this. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. There's another translation that says, making every effort to. Utilizing all your resources to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So while our subjective experience of the unity in the church may be disrupted, it's not disrupted because God is lacking in any way or because His resources for the church are lacking in any way. Our unity is disrupted because we don't listen to His instructions about the maintenance of our unity. Because we don't listen to His instructions about how our unity is maintained. You say, well, how is it? Well, look what He says right there. It's maintained through humility toward one another. Our unity is maintained through gentleness toward one another. Our unity is maintained with patience, long-suffering, bearing with one another. It doesn't just say enduring one another because we have to. No, bearing with one another how? In love. This is how our unity is maintained and it is a tremendous unity. It's a tremendous unity because of who the head is. Christ is the head of this body, the church. And Christ is not divided. 
That's what he tells the Corinthian church that was so divided over so many issues. He says, is Christ divided? No, Christ is not divided. He is not divided. And he is the head over his church. And again, in Ephesians 4, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Does he say we might grow up? I mean, do you say, parents, did you say to your kids when they were three or four, you know, you might grow up. Now, when they were in really bad behavior, you might have said to them, you know, by the grace of God, you might live through this. But you didn't say, well, you know, you may grow up, you may not. And if you found something developmentally with your kid that was going on, you wanted to get that fixed, right? Because you want them to grow up. It's God's design and plan. It's the same is true for us spiritually. So we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and in case you didn't catch it into christ it's all about him from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body do what grow so that it builds itself up and once again how does it do it in love the reason our unity is often disrupted is because we don't love one another as he's commanded us to. Because we get selfish, we allow sin to creep in, and it causes divisions that were never meant to be there. And the body is ruptured by the disease of self-centeredness. It's a cancer in the church. I could say much more, but we've got a lot to get through here. Verse 13, baptism's not only about one body, it's about one spirit. Let's read it again together, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And then notice this. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Now here's what he's doing here. We may not understand in our present context the, the Jews or Greeks, slave or free, but, but I want you to think about this. If I were to ask you today, what are the greatest dividing lines in our current culture? If I were to come around with a microphone and ask you, what are, the, what are the greatest divisions in the culture in which we live? Now, somebody in the room may mention the racial divide in our country. Some may mention the, the socioeconomic divide in our country. Some people may talk about a uh, difference in educational levels. Uh, some may talk about a, a number of different things could be brought out. We may even get silly and talk about the divide between UK fans and U of L fans. I mean, we could go on and on with the various ways that we're divided. But I want to say this to us. There is nothing in our current culture that parallels the divide that the Apostle Paul talks about right here in verse 13. There is nothing in our culture that rivals the division between Jews and Greeks in the first century. Yeah, we've got some major division happening, some major cracks in our culture, some major divisions that are rearing their ugly heads, but we've got nothing like they were dealing with within the division between Jews and Gentiles or Jews and Greeks. They wouldn't enter into one another's homes. Oftentimes, if they were passing on the street, one would go to the other side. They had no interactions with one another whatsoever. And it wasn't just the divide between Jews and Greeks. The second most powerful division in the culture to which Paul is writing is the division between those who were slaves and those who were free. 
Now I want you to understand something here. Paul is in no way by mentioning slavery, endorsing it. Nowhere in the scriptures does the Bible endorse slavery. It just simply recognizes that slavery is a part of a sin-soaked, fallen world. And by the way, slavery is not dead today. If you hadn't heard, there are still thousands upon thousands living in modern-day slavery, and it's just as ugly and hideous as it has always been. The Bible simply recognizes, does not seek to cover over the effects of sin in the world, one of which is slavery. And in the first century, especially in the first century church, there were more people living in slavery in the body of Christ than there were who were freed people. In fact, easily half of the Roman Empire at any given time was composed of those who were living in slavery. And there was this huge cultural divide between those who were slaves and those who were free. And yet, and yet, the Apostle Paul can write here that those huge dividing walls that were erected, the dividing wall of the culture between Jews and Greeks, and the dividing wall of class between slaves and free, he says those dividing walls have been obliterated. The dynamite of the cross has blown those things to smithereens where they have no meaning whatsoever anymore. And yet, his point here is this, that while there is great unity in the body, there is also tremendous diversity. So here's what our culture is trying to do right now. Our culture is seeking to erase a lot of the things that they see as problems in terms of divisions by making everyone the same. Let's just erase our view of diversity. Let's make everybody, let's just erase gender differences. Do you see that happening in our culture right now? Now as a dad who is raising both a boy and two girls, let me tell you, boys and girls are different no matter what our culture says. Genesis chapter 1 reminds us we were created male and female in his image. It was the desire of our God that there be a difference in genders. And both of them are made how? In his image. Neither is less than the other. We are equal in the sight of God, but we are given radically different roles. There is a diversity of gifts to the glory of God. It's his design. But our culture is seeking equality under the umbrella of sameness. So let's seek to erase diversity, and then we'll have unity. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible recognizes there is a better way. Once again, culture and class distinctions, they no longer divide us. Jew, Greek, slave, free, whatever you want to talk about in our culture today. Black, white, rich, poor, educated, non-educated, whatever you want to say. White collar, blue collar. We could go on and on and on. Republicans and Democrats. What Paul's point is, is this. That all those distinctions, all the things that divide us, all the things that would keep us from one another, all the walls that we would build to separate us have been torn down by the cross and they need no longer divide us and they will only do so when we allow sin to creep in once again and act, operate in a self-centered mentality the thing which unites us the most is found there at the end of verse 13 this reality that we've all been filled with the same spirit 
And praise be to God, we didn't just take a little sip. We have all been, we have all, what does he say there? We have all been made to drink of one spirit. And the idea of drink there is not a little sip. It, we have been filled with the spirit of God. And so that which unites us because of the cross, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, because of all the resources of God that have gone into our salvation, that which unites us in Jesus Christ is greater than any dividing wall that could be erected in any culture at any time in any place and so what does that mean that means that you have more in common today if you are a follower of Jesus Christ you have more in common today with a Zulu warrior who is worshiping Christ in Africa this morning than you do with your next door neighbor who doesn't know Christ as Savior You say, well, wait a minute, they, they speak a different language, completely different lifestyle. You have more in common because of the cross with believers on the planet who are so radically different from you. You wonder, what would we even talk about? You would talk about Jesus. I wish I had longer to dwell here, but we've got to keep moving. Romans 12, 4 and as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Finally this morning, baptism is about one body, one spirit. Ultimately, baptism is about one God who's revealed himself to us in three persons. Baptism is ultimately about the triune God who is one and yet has revealed himself in three persons. And you say, how does that work? I don't know when you figure it out, come and teach me. I'm not really sure exactly how the Trinity works. The mystery of godliness is great. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His being is beyond our understanding. But we believe this because we see it all throughout the Scriptures. You say, well, I've never seen the word Trinity in the Scriptures. You won't find it there, but you will find it described over and over and over again. Let me just show you one place that applies to what we're talking about this morning. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, Jesus came to be baptized. Came to be baptized by John. John said, what are you talking about, dude? You ought to be baptizing me. That's a right response, by the way. But Jesus said, no, this, is, this must be done. This must be done. This is the way it needs to be. We'll talk about in a moment why it must be done. But in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water. Here's why we believe in baptism by immersion. How do you come up out of the water if you don't get into the water? If it's sprinkling or pouring, you don't come up out of the water. The word baptizo literally means to immerse. I could harp on this more. I'm just going to say, if it's not immersion, it's not really baptism, truthfully. He came up out of the water, and what happened? Here's the point. And immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. A violent motion of the heavens being torn open so that the glory of God could creep through for just a moment. That the glory of God could be displayed. Just a glimmer of His glory. And what happens? And He saw the Spirit descending on Him like 
a dove. Now notice it says like a dove. There's a lot of pictures out there and paintings of a dove descending from heaven at Jesus' baptism. It's like a dove. It's the nature of a dove being described there. And a voice came from heaven. And what did the voice say? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So right here, we have the Father speaking from heaven. At the baptism of His Son, with you I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven like a dove. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the baptism of Jesus Christ. And if you want me to show you a dozen more places in the Scripture where these three come together, I would gladly do so because we do believe in a triune God, one God who has demonstrated Himself, who has revealed Himself, has shown Himself in these three persons. You say, why? Why would God do that? Because God loves unity and diversity. This is the very nature and character of God that we're talking about this morning. And it's described so beautifully at Jesus' baptism in Christ. Only in Christ. There is this unshakable unity in the very midst of what our culture is beginning to see as dangerous diversity. We're beginning to see everybody wanting to be, again, this idea of sameness being perpetrated throughout our culture right now. But the Lord loves diversity. He created us with great diversity because that's His very nature. Our God is more diverse than any of us will ever be. And He wants to put that on display. We were meant to display His glory through our diversity and our unity in the midst of it. Because ultimately this, God Himself is the pattern for His people. So if we were to ask this morning, why baptism? Why this wash tub? And here in just a few minutes, we're going to dunk a young lady into the water, and I'm going to try not to hold her too long. Why do we do that? It's because the living God has given us instruction in His Word, and not just instruction, He set the example. Why was Jesus baptized? To set before us an example that we might also walk in this beautiful picture. So someone might ask, well, do I really have to be baptized? I always find that question interesting because you're really asking the wrong question. Do I really have to be baptized? No, you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. You don't have to be baptized to love Jesus. But even in the asking of the question, do I have to be baptized? Man, we're missing something. We're missing the fact that in baptism we have this amazing opportunity to demonstrate to a lost and dying world that the living Christ has rescued our sin-soaked souls and has redeemed us from death and hell and the grave. We are identifying with His death and burial and resurrection. And the question should be not, do I have to get baptized? It ought to be the question that was asked one day by an Ethiopian eunuch he said, hey, here's some water. Why not baptize me right now? Shouldn't I do it right now? 
Knowing what I know about Jesus and Him having rescued me by the power that only He alone possesses, having recognized that He has done for me what I could never do for myself, should I not get baptized? And so they went down into the water that day in front of the caravan that was there, and He was baptized, following in the footsteps of His Lord. And if that's not enough, Jesus' last words before he left, ascending back into heaven, now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, notice this. Notice he didn't say the names. Amen. He didn't say the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you even see the three in one right here in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so baptism reminds us of that dual promise of God. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I love to exert that authority in the radical transformation of lives. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of this church age, to the day when once again the heavens will be split wide, but it won't just be a glimmer of the glory of God that comes through. It will be the fullness of His glory. And when Jesus comes again, it will no longer be meek and mild, gentle Jesus, baby born in Bethlehem. It will be the King of glory. He will ride in in all of His glory. He will split wide the heavens and He will take those who have been baptized in His Spirit home to reign and rule with Him forever. And those who have rejected the free offer of eternal life that's found in Him alone will face the baptism of fire that John the Baptist spoke about. Once again, you will be baptized by Jesus Christ. It will either be with His Spirit or it will be with, it'll be with His fire. And so we follow Him in believer's baptism. Recognizing that baptism is by no means a finish line. It is in every way a starting point. The starting point of a life that's devoted to honoring the God who loved us so much that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so do you have to get baptized? Nope. But you get to.